First Chapter Ten of Langstroth on the Hive and the Honey Bee. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, August two thousand nine, Alexandria, Virginia. Langstroth on the Hive and the Honey Bee by L. L. Langstroth. First Chapter Ten natural swarming and hiving of swarms part one the swarming of bees has been justly regarded as one of the most beautiful sights in the whole compass of rural economy although for reasons which will hereafter be assigned i prefer to rely chiefly on artificial means for the multiplication of colonies i should be very unwilling to pass a season without participating to some extent in the pleasant excitement of natural swarming Quote, up mounts the chief and to the cheated eye ten thousand shuttles dart along the sky as swift through ether rise the rushing swarms gay dancing to the beam their sun-bright forms and each thin form still lingering on the sight trails as it shoots a line of silver light high poised on buoyant wing the thoughtful queen in gaze attentive views the varied scene and soon her far-fetched ken discerns below the light laburnum lift her polished brow wave her green leafy ringlets over the glade and seem to beckon her friendly shade swift as the falcon's sweep the monarch bends her flight abrupt the following host descends round the fine twig like clustered grapes they close in thickening wreaths and court a short repose evans the swarming of bees by making provision for the constant multiplication of colonies was undoubtedly intended both to guard the insect against the possibility of extinction and to make its labors in the highest degree useful to man the laws of reproduction in those insects which do not live in regular colonies are such as to secure an ample increase of numbers the same is true in the case of hornets wasps and humble-bees which live in colonies only during the warm weather in the fall of the year all the males perish while the impregnated females retreat into winter quarters and remain dormant until the warm weather restores them to activity and each one becomes the mother of a new family. The honey-bee differs from all these insects in being compelled, by the laws of its physical organization, to live in communities during the entire year. The balmy breezes of spring will quickly thaw out the frozen veins of a torpid wasp, but the bee is incapable of enduring even a moderate degree of cold. A temperature as low as 50 degrees speedily chills it, and it would be quite as easy to recall to life the stiffened corpses in the charnel house of the convent of the great St. Bernard as to restore to animation a frozen bee. In cool weather, they must therefore associate in large numbers in order to maintain the animal heat which is necessary to their preservation, and the formation of new colonies after the manner of wasps and hornets is clearly impossible if the young queens left the parent stock in summer and were able 
like the mother wasps, to lay the foundations of a new colony, they could not maintain the warmth requisite for the development of their young, even if they were able, without any baskets on their thighs, to gather bee bread for their support. If all these difficulties were surmounted, they would still be unable to amass any treasures for our use, or even to lay up the stores requisite for their own preservation. How admirably are all these difficulties obviated by the present arrangement! Their domicile is well supplied with all the materials for rearing a brood, and long before any of the insects which depend upon the heat of the sun are able to commence breeding, the bees have added thousands in the full vigor of youth to their already numerous population. They are thus able to send off in season colonies sufficiently powerful to take advantage of the honey harvest and provision the new hive against the approach of winter. From these considerations, it is very evident that swarming, so far from being, as some Aparians have considered it, a forced or unnatural event, is one which, in a state of nature, could not possibly be dispensed with. Let us now inquire under what circumstances it ordinarily takes place. The time when swarms may be expected depends, of course, upon climate, season, and the strength of the stocks. In the northern and middle states, bees seldom swarm before the latter part of May, and June may be considered as the great swarming month. The importance of having powerful swarms early in the season will be discussed in another place. In the spring, as soon as a hive well filled with comb and bees becomes too much crowded to accommodate its teeming population, the bees begin the necessary preparations for emigration. A number of royal cells are commenced about the time that the drones first make their appearance, and by the time that the young queens arrive at maturity, the drones are always found in the greatest abundance. The first swarm is invariably let off by the old queen, unless she has previously died from accident or disease, in which case it is accompanied by one of the young queens reared to supply her loss. The old mother leaves soon after the royal cells are sealed over, unless delayed by unfavorable weather. There are no signs from which the apiarian can, with certainty, predict the issue of a first swarm. I devoted annually much attention to this point, vainly hoping to discover some infallible indications of first swarming, until taught by further reflection that, from the very nature of the case, there can be no such indications. The bees, from an unfavorable state of the weather, or the failure of the blossoms to yield an abundant supply of honey, often change their minds, and refuse to swarm, even after all their preparations have been completed. Nay more, they sometimes send out no new colonies that season, when a sudden change of weather has interrupted them on the very day when they were intending to emigrate, and after they had taken a full supply of honey for their journey. If on a fair, warm day in the swarming season, but few bees leave a strong hive, while other colonies are busily at work, we may, unless the weather suddenly prove unfavorable, look with great confidence for a swarm. 
as the old queens, which accompany the first swarm, are heavy with eggs, and fly with considerable difficulty. They are shy of venturing out, except on fair, still days. If the weather is very sultry, a swarm will sometimes issue as early as seven o'clock in the morning, but from ten to two is the usual time, and the majority of swarms come off from eleven to one. Occasionally, a swarm will venture out as late as five p.m. An old queen is seldom guilty of such a piece of indiscretion. I have in repeated instances witnessed the whole process of swarming in my observing hives. In the day fixed for their departure, the queen appears to be very restless, and instead of depositing her eggs in the cells, she travels over the combs and communicates her agitation to the whole colony. The emigrating bees fill themselves with honey some time before their departure. In one instance, I noticed them laying in their supplies more than two hours before they left. A short time before the swarm rises, a few bees may generally be seen, sporting in the air, with their heads turned always to the hive, occasionally flying in and out, as though they were impatient for the important event to take place. At length, a very violent agitation commences in the hive. The bees appear almost frantic, whirling around in a circle, which continually enlarges, like the circles made by a stone thrown into still water, until, at last, the whole hive is in a state of the greatest ferment, and the bees rush impetuously to the entrance, and pour forth in one steady stream. Not a bee looks behind, but each one pushes straight ahead, as though flying for dear life, or urged on by some invisible power in its headlong career. The queen often does not come out until a large number have left, and she is frequently so heavy from the large number of eggs in her ovaries that she falls to the ground, incapable of rising with the colony into the air. The bees are very soon aware of her absence, and a most interesting scene may now be witnessed. A diligent search is immediately made for their missing mother. The swarm scatters in all directions, and I have frequently seen the leaves of the adjoining trees and bushes, almost as thickly covered with the anxious explorers as they are with drops of rain after a copious shower. If she cannot be found, they return to the old hive, though occasionally they attempt to enter some other hive, or join themselves to another swarm if any is still unhived. The ringing of bells and beating of kettles and frying pans is one of the good old ways more honored by the breach than the observance. It may answer a very good purpose in amusing the children, but I believe that as far as the bees are concerned, it is all time thrown away and that it is not a whit more efficacious than the custom practiced by some savage tribes, who, when the sun is eclipsed, imagining that it has been swallowed by an enormous dragon, resort to the most frightful noises, to compel his snake-ship to disgorge their favorite luminary. If a swarm has selected a new home previous to their departure, no amount of noise will ever compel them to alight, 
but as soon as all the bees which compose the emigrating colony have left the hive, they fly in a direct course, or bee-line, to the chosen spot. I have noticed that, when bees are much neglected by those who pretend to take care of them, such unceremonious leave-taking is quite common. On the contrary, when proper attention is bestowed on them, it seldom occurs. It can seldom if ever occur to those who manage their bees according to my system, as I shall show in the chapter on artificial swarming. If the apiarian perceives that his swarm instead of clustering begins to rise higher and higher in the air, and evidently means to depart, not a moment is to be lost. Instead of empty noises, he must resort to means much more effective to stay their vagrant propensities. Handfuls of dirt cast into the air, or water thrown among them, will often so disorganize them as to compel them to alight. Of all devices for stopping them, the most original one that I have ever heard of is to flash the sun's rays among them by the use of a looking-glass. I have never had occasion to try it, but the anonymous writer who recommends it says that he never knew it to fail. If they are forcibly prevented from eloping, then special care must be taken, or they will be almost sure soon after hiving to leave for their selected home. The queen should be caught and confined for several days in a way which will be subsequently described. The same caution must be exercised when new swarms abandon their hive. If the queen cannot be caught, and there is reason to dread a desertion, the bees may be carried into the cellar, and confined in total darkness, until towards sunset of the third day after they swarmed, being supplied in the meantime with water and honey to build their combs. If a colony decides to go, they look upon the hive in which they are put as only a temporary stopping place, and seldom trouble themselves to build any comb in it. If the hive is so constructed as to permit inspection, I can tell by a glance whether bees are disgusted with their new residence, and mean before long to clear out. They not only refuse to work with that energy so characteristic of a new swarm, but they have a peculiar look, which to the unexperienced eye at once proclaims the fact that they are staying only upon sufferance. Their very attitude, hanging as they do with the sort of dogged or supercilious air, as though they hated even so much as to touch their detested abode, is equivalent to an open proclamation that they mean to be off. My numerous experiments in attempting from the moment of hiving to make the bees work in observing hives exposed to the full light of day, instead of keeping them, as I now do in darkness for several days, have made me quite familiar with all their graceless, do-nothing proceedings before their departure. Bees sometimes abandon their hives very early in the spring, or late in summer or fall. They exhibit all the appearance of natural swarming, but they leave, not because the population is crowded, but because it is either so small, or the hive so destitute of supplies, 
that they are discouraged or driven to desperation. I once knew a colony to leave the hive under such circumstances on a spring-like day in December. They seem to have a presentiment that they must perish if they stay, and instead of awaiting the sure approach of famine, they sally out to see if something cannot be done to better their condition. At first sight, it seems strange that so provident an insect should not always select a suitable domicile before venturing out on so important a step as to abandon the old home. Often before they are safely housed again, they are exposed to powerful winds and drenching rains, which beat down and destroy many of their number. I solved this problem in the economy of the bee, in the same manner that I have solved so many others, by considering in what way this arrangement conduces to the advantage of man. The honey-bee would have been of comparatively little service to him, if instead of tarrying until he had sufficient time to establish them in a hive, in which to labor for him, their instinct impelled them to decamp, without any delay, from the restraints of domestication. In this, as in many other things, we see that what on a superficial view appear to be a very obvious imperfection proves, on closer examination, to be a special contrivance to answer important ends. To return to our new swarm, the queen sometimes alights first, and sometimes joins the cluster after it has commenced forming. It is a very rare thing for the bees ever to cluster, unless the queen is with them, and when they do, and yet afterwards disperse, I believe that usually the queen, after first rising with them, has been lost by falling into some spot where she is unnoticed by the bees. In two instances, I perform the following interesting experiment. Perceiving a hive in the very act of swarming, I contracted the entrance so as to secure the queen when she made her appearance. In each case, at least one-third of the bees came out before the queen presented herself to join them. When I perceived that the swarm had given up their search for her, and were beginning to return to the parent hive, I placed her, with her wings clipped, on the limb of a small evergreen tree. She crawled to the very top of the limb, as if for the purpose of making herself as conspicuous as possible. A few bees noticed her, and, instead of alighting, darted rapidly away. In a few seconds, the whole colony were apprised of her presence, flew in a dense cloud to the spot, and commenced quietly clustering around her. I have often noticed the surprising rapidity with which bees communicate with each other, while on the wing. Telegraphic signals are hardly more instantaneous. See chapter on the loss of the queen. That bees send out scouts to seek a suitable abode, it seems to me, can admit of no serious question. Swarms have been traced to their new home, either in their flight directly from their hive, or from the place where they have clustered, and it is evident that in such instances they have pursued the most direct course.
Now such a precision of flight to a terra incognita, an unknown home, would plainly be impossible, if some of their number had not previously selected the spot, so as to be competent to act as guides to the rest. The sight of the bees for distant objects is wonderfully acute, and after rising to a sufficient elevation, they can see the prominent objects in the vicinity of their intended abode, even although they may be several miles distant. Whether the bees send out their scouts before or after swarming may admit of more question. In cases where the colony flies without alighting to its new home, they are unquestionably dispatched before swarming. If this were their usual course, then we should naturally expect all the colonies to take the same speedy departure, or if, for the convenience of the queen over-fatigued by the excitement of swarming, or for any other reason, they should see fit to cluster, then we should expect that only a transient tarrying would be allowed. Instead of this, they often remain until the next day, and instances of a more protracted delay are not unfrequent. The cases which occur, of bees stopping in their flight, and clustering again on any convenient object, are not inconsistent with this view of the subject. For if the weather is hot, and the sun shines directly upon them, they will often leave before they have found a suitable habitation, and even when they are on the way to their new home, the queen being heavy with eggs, and unaccustomed to fly, is sometimes from weariness compelled to alight, and her colony clusters around her. Queens, under such circumstances, sometimes seem unwilling to entrust themselves again to their wings, and the poor bees attempt to lay foundations of their colony on fence rails, haystacks, or other most unsuitable places. I have been informed by Mr. Henry M. Zollicoffer of Philadelphia, a very intelligent and reliable observer, that he knew a swarm to settle on a willow tree in that city, in a lot owned by the Pennsylvania Hospital. It remained there for some time, and the boys pelted it with stones to get possession of its comb and honey. The absolute necessity for scouts or explorers is evident from all the facts in the case, unless we admit that bees have the faculty of flying in an airline to a hollow tree, or some suitable abode which they have never seen, though they cannot find their hive if, in their absence, it is moved only a few rods from its former position. These obvious considerations are abundantly confirmed by the repeated instances in which a few bees have been noticed prying very inquisitively into a hole in a hollow tree or the cornice of a building, and have been succeeded, before long, by a whole colony. The importance of these remarks will be more obvious when I come to discuss the proper mode of hiving bees, Having discussed the common method of procedure pursued by the new swarm, when left without interference to their natural instincts, it is time to return to the parent stock from which they emigrated. In witnessing the immense number which have abandoned it, 
we might naturally suppose that it must be almost entirely depopulated. It is sometimes asserted that as bees swarm in the pleasantest part of the day, the population is replenished by the return of large numbers of workers that were absent in the fields. This, however, can seldom be the case, as it is rare for many bees to be absent from the hive at the time of swarming. To those who limit the fertility of the queen to 200 or at most 400 eggs per day, the rapid replenishing of the hive after swarming must ever be a problem incapable of solution. But to those who have a clear demonstration that she can lay from one to three thousand eggs a day, it is no mystery at all. A sufficient number of bees is always left behind to carry on the domestic operations of the hive. And as the old queen departs only when the population of the hive is superabundant, and when thousands of young bees are hatching daily, and often 30,000 or more, are rapidly maturing, in a short time the hive is almost as populous as it was before swarming. Those who assert that the new colony is composed of young bees, which have been forced to emigrate by the older workers, have certainly failed to use their eyes to much advantage, or they would have seen, in hiving a new swarm, that it is composed of both young and old, some having wings ragged from hard work, while others are evidently quite young. After the tumult of swarming is entirely over, not a bee that did not participate in it seeks afterwards to join the new colony, and not one that did seeks to return. What determines some to go and others to stay, we have no certain means of knowing. How wonderfully abiding the impression made upon an insect, which in a moment causes it to lose all its strong affection for the old home in which it was bred, and which it has entered, perhaps hundreds of times, so that when established in another hive, though only a few feet distant, it never afterwards pays the slightest attention to its former abode. Often, when the hive into which the new swarm is put is not removed from the place where the bees were hived, until some have gone to the fields. On their return, they fly for hours, in ceaseless circles about the spot where the missing hive stood. I have often known them to continue the vain search for their companions until they have, at length, dropped down from utter exhaustion, and perished in close proximity to their old homes. It has been already stated that the old queen, if the weather is favorable, generally leaves about the time that the young queens are sealed over, to be changed into nymphs. In about eight days more, one of these queens hatches, and the question must now be decided whether any more colonies are to be sent out that season or not. If the hive is well filled with bees, and the season in all respects promising, this question is generally decided in the affirmative. Although colonies often refuse to swarm more than once when they are very strong, and when we can assign no reason for such a course, and they sometimes swarm repeatedly 
to the utter ruin of both the old stock and the after swarms. If the bees decide to swarm again, the first hatched queen is allowed to have her own way. She rushes immediately to the cells of her sisters, and, as was described in the chapter on physiology, stings them to death. From some observations that I have made, I am inclined to think that the other bees aid her in this murderous transaction. They certainly tear open the cradles of the slaughtered innocents and remove them from the cells. Their dead bodies may often be found on the ground in front of the hive. When a queen has emerged in the natural way from her cell, the bees usually nibble away the now useless abode, until only a small acorn cup remains. But when by violence she has met with an untimely end, they take down entirely the whole of the cell. By counting these acorn cups, it can always be ascertained how many young queens have hatched in a hive. Before the queens emerge from their cells, a fluttering sound is frequently heard, which is caused by the rapid motion of their wings, and which must not be confounded with the piping notes which will soon be described. If the bees of the parent stock decide to swarm again, the first hatched queen is prevented from killing the others. A strong guard is kept over their cells, and as often as she approaches them with murderous intent, she is bitten, or otherwise rudely treated, and given to understand by the most uncourtier-like demonstrations that she cannot, in all things, do just as she pleases. When thus repulsed, like men and women who cannot have their own way, she is highly offended and utters an angry sound, given forth in quick succession of notes, and which sounds not unlike the rapid utterance of the words peep-peep. I have frequently, by holding a queen in the closed hand, caused her to make the same noise. To this angry note, one or more of the queens still unhatched will respond, in a somewhat hoarser key, just as chicken cocks, by crowing, bid defiance to each other. These sounds are entirely unlike the usual steady hum of the bees, and when heard, are the most infallible indications that a second swarm will soon issue. They are occasionally so loud that they may be heard at some distance from the hive. About a week after first swarming, the apiarian should, early in the morning or at evening, when the bees are still, place his ear against the hive, and he will, if the queens are piping, readily recognize their peculiar sounds. If their notes are not heard, at the very latest, sixteen days after the departure of the first swarm, by which time the young queens are mature, even if the first colony left, as soon as the eggs were deposited in the royal cells, it is an infallible indication that the first hatched queen is without rivals in the hive, and that swarming is over, in that stock, for the season. The second swarm usually issues on the second or third day after this sound is heard. Although I have known them to delay coming out until the fifth day, in consequence of a very unfavorable state of the weather. 
occasionally, the weather is so unfavorable, that the bees permit the oldest queen to kill the others, and refuse to swarm again. This is a rare occurrence, as the young queens, unlike the old ones, do not appear to be very particular about the weather, and sometimes venture out, not merely when it is cloudy, but even when rain is falling. On this account, if a very close watch is not kept, they are often lost. As piping ordinarily commences about eight or nine days after first swarming, the second swarm generally issues ten or twelve days after the first. It has been known to issue as early as the third day after the first, and as late as the seventeenth. Such cases, however, are of rare occurrence. It frequently happens, in the agitation of swarming, that several of the young queens emerge from their cells at the same time and accompany the colony. When this is the case, the bees often alight in two or more separate clusters. Young queens not having their ovaries burdened with eggs are much more quick on the wing than the old ones and fly frequently much farther from the parent stock before they alight though I never knew a second swarm to depart the woods without clustering at all. After the departure of a second swarm, the oldest of the remaining queens leaves her cell, and if another swarm is to be sent forth, piping will still be heard, and so, before the issue of each swarm after the first. I once had five stocks issue from one swarm, and they all came out in about two weeks. In warm latitudes, more than twice this number of swarms have been known to issue in one season from a single stock. The third swarm commonly makes its appearance on the second or third day after the second swarm, and the others at intervals of about a day. After swarms, or casts, these names are given to all swarms after the first, reduce very seriously the strength of the parent stock, for after the departure of the old queen, no more eggs are deposited in the cells until all swarming is over. It is a very wise arrangement that the second swarm does not ordinarily issue until all the eggs left by the first queen are hatched, and the young are fed and sealed over, so as to require no further care. The departure of the second swarm earlier than this would leave too few laborers to attend to the wants of the young bees. As it is, if the weather after swarming suddenly becomes chilly, and the hives are thin and admit too much air, the bees are too much reduced in numbers to maintain the heat requisite for the proper development of the brood, and numbers are destroyed. End of first chapter 10 Part 1